Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And the final Grand Slam of 2020 has now come and gone at Roland Garros. Rafael Nadal won his 13th title in Paris at the French Open, and we had Iga Swiatek uh, become the first Polish player ever to win a major in the Open era. And for Canadian tennis fans, there was lots of reason for optimism with the return to form of Jeannie Bouchard and some impressive play from up-and-coming Leila Annie Fernandez as both of them made the third round. Uh, to help us break down all the action from the past two weeks, we've got two of Canada's biggest tennis analysts and tennis fans as well. And we're happy to welcome Carolyn Cameron from Sportsnet and Mark Masters from TSN. Great to have you both with us. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. And um, we, we wanted to start on the women's side and, and maybe I'll, I'll pose the question, Mark, to you first and, and Caroline, you, you can chime in as well. But uh, just looking at this run from Iga Spiontek, you know, such a dominant tournament start to finish. She didn't drop a single set. In fact, her closest set was, was 6-4 and uh, now she has her first Grand Slam title. I'm just curious, uh, really, for both of you, what, what did you know about this player coming into the tournament? And do you think this is one of those like flashes in the pan or is this, this a player we're going to see and hear from for years to come? Yes. Well, I mean, recency bias would uh, lead you to think that uh, she's going to be a mainstay for a while. She just won the French Open, losing only 28 games. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did I know about her? Uh, she, I, she won the Wimbledon Junior title, I think, in 2018. She had been to a couple fourth rounds. Got absolutely smoked by uh, Simona Halep last year at the French in the fourth round. So she was on the radar, but I, I did not think uh, – I did not see this coming. I mean, we had a discussion on the TSN show about how, to, how we were going to pronounce her name. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so it's, not like, it's not like we were, we were expecting her to go, to go all the way uh, at the beginning of the week. But, uh, the but nice yeah, thing I, now, Mark, is, is on the WTA website, they've got that cool little feature where you can click on yes. it and have the players yeah. – pronounce their own name and, and as much as that website frustrates me from time to time uh, th- that is a neat feature that they've got so it's uh yeah it's it's helpful it's a lifesaver I'm so happy I think every league should have to do that for for every player but uh so yes I I it was it was very uh very surprising I guess not that she well yes that she won it but the way she won it as well so is it more of a Yelena Ostapenko situation I think she just turned 20 when she won the French Open uh, I feel like Sviantec has more of a complete game uh, and could be more sustainable. Uh, but she said it herself, consistency is always going to be the key now moving forward. So uh, I'm not sure what to make of it, uh, but, but it certainly, certainly bodes well for, for her moving forward. I mean, to, to, to win it the way she did. It's kind of like um, any of these teenagers who've kind of burst onto the scene in the WTA. And you could even say on the ATP is now where things is when things get really tricky. I mean, sure, it's hard enough to win a Grand Slam in your first Grand Slam, especially at that age. But now, in terms of being consistent, no one's going to be surprised when they're up against you. They know what to expect and they'll be prepared. But to piggyback on what Mark was saying, I think she does have a a good all-around game. And I was really impressed just with her forehand, how aggressive she was. But for me, I didn't know much about her past what Mark said. I just remember covering Rogers Cup last year and she made it, I believe it was to the third round. She played Naomi Osaka. And it was something like seven six six four. And she mm. played well. Like, she had a good showing. But, yeah, other than that, I mean, no one expected her to come in and, and win the French Open. But she's really poised for her age in a way similar to 
uh, Bianca Andreescu and what we saw last year. But now just the question is at that age. Yeah, I remember back to to Rogers Cup last summer in Toronto and she beat Caroline Wozniacki in either the first or second round. And I wasn't sure really how to put that into context because Wozniacki hadn't been playing her best game anymore at that point. Mm -hmm. And, um, but was definitely impressed and, and, but nobody, again, who would have picked this one? I don't, I don't know what you would have made if you put money down on her at the start of the tournament, Um, but somebody smiling somewhere, probably in Poland, I would imagine. (laughs) Um, Was there, was there anybody on the women's side that, um, that you had higher expectations for um, that, that didn't really pan out. I don't know if maybe Serena or um, I mean, Bianca wasn't there obviously, so probably not a Canadian, but anyone that you had higher hopes for that just didn't uh, sort of go according to plan. For me, it was Halep. And I mean, granted she lost to the eventual champ, but especially coming off uh, winning Rome, I was surprised that she didn't do better. And again, just like everyone in this tournament, she was beat um, by Ian straight sets. Um, and Serena, I had higher hopes too. And I know we're going to talk, talk about Serena as the podcast goes on, but I just keep thinking, oh, each slam, I think, oh, this is the perfect opportunity now for Serena to make history. And then every time since 2017, it isn't. I mean, we can go down that route for a second because, um, I mean, time is, is starting to, uh, to run out for her. And I mean, I just turned 40 this past summer and I just know in my men's league hockey, how much, uh, (laughs) Harder it is for me. Uh, don't even get me started on the tennis court. But uh, but she's turning forty next year, and the opportunities are are certainly um, dwindling. And Ben, you and me spoke with her coach Patrick Muradoglu this summer, and he pretty much said, yeah, at this point, she's only continuing to to catch that that record to tie and and hopefully overtake Margaret Court. What do you guys think, Mark? Maybe we'll turn over to you for a second. And and what do you think? How realistic is it to think that that's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to add one last thing on Spiontech because you guys brought up the Toronto match. I found it interesting that she, she did an Instagram Live with Osaka recently and said that that was the, the moment in Toronto, that Wozniacki match, where she felt finally felt comfortable playing on a big stage and that mm-hmm. something clicked for her. She lost that first set 6-1 to Wozniacki, and then she felt, she felt even though she lost a close match to Osaka next, that she wasn't even upset because she felt like she had really turned a corner there. So you never know when a player is going to – going to have that moment and apparently it happened for her in Toronto so that's that's kind of cool as for Serena uh do I don't know do do we do we think this is a real record I just wonder just go around the (laughs) horn like I know I know it certainly matters to her and it motivates her but like it doesn't really matter right no she's the greatest of all time yeah Yeah. we we should we should note I you know when Steffi Graf um set her Grand Slam record, and, and I think, what, reached, reached 22. Nobody was ever talking about Margaret Court. This was not a record, not a number that was ever brought up. And I, I think what you're talking about, uh, like 11 Australian Opens, um, where the field was essentially Australian players. So it is really not in the same ballpark. Um, I, I wonder if it was just a goal that her and Patrick Moradoglu set to just keep her motivated and keep her pushing and playing like just another thing to chase because I, I think we would have if Margaret Court hadn't been brought into the discussion we would would have been happy to declare Serena as the goat uh, for all intents and purposes just by virtue of winning 23 Grand Slams. Serena yeah. Serena's so proud too and throughout her career she's had to shut up the naysayers so I think this is more a number and a moment where if she has the record, then you can't ask any questions. I think yeah. it's more so that. But it's, it's interesting because it clearly does 
bother her. And I don't know, Mark, what you've thought or any of you guys. I think it's just interesting in recent slams when she loses everything that she's saying at the podium, it, it doesn't have to do as much with physical. I know at the French open it did, but a lot of it is her not being able to answer why mentally she can't get over it. So it's, it's kind of that she's lacking confidence, which is something that we don't see often from her. And not only that, but she herself doesn't have the answers as to why she just can't get past that mental hurdle. Yeah. And I mean, she's made still four finals of majors since she's come back from giving birth and she made them relatively quickly after returning to the tour as well, which I thought was super impressive, but Carolyn, you're right. Um, I mean, Patrick was saying to us that it's that, that mental sort of fortitude in those moments, which we never would have questioned that with Serena previously. So it's, it's kind of bizarre seeing her in that vulnerable kind of state. Mm-hmm. It's changed. She used to have this big mental edge going into these finals. And now it's almost like the, the players that are playing her are relishing the chance to get her on the, when she's coming down now, like yeah. they're not intimidated. They actually think this is great and they get the chance and they're hitting freely. And we saw Bianca Andreescu, of course, uh, and she, I think that the moment in Toronto probably helped her as well, even though that wasn't a full match. But she, you know, she she did not really get flustered at all. I mean, she started well in that match. And uh, Serena really hasn't come close in those four finals that she's been in. She hasn't won a set in any of them. So, um, and it's not getting easier for sure. Uh, you'd think Wimbledon, I guess, would be would be her best chance. And she lost that tournament, as did a lot everyone this year. And so we'll see. I mean, you don't. It's, you can't bet against her because she's Serena and she serves well for two weeks at Wimbledon. She certainly can win that tournament, but it just feels like the way the women's game is now, um, there's always going to be someone there. If it's not Halep, maybe Muguruza or, you know, Sviantek or Andrescu gets, comes back to health. There's, it's deep. It's deep at the top now, it feels like. Um, and it's, it's, it's going to be tough. Yeah, and uh, well, you, you make a, a good point just overall because I think we're at a, an interesting place with, with the women's tour overall because we feel like we have quite a blend of these veteran players who are still posting great results. Simona Halep, for example, obviously one of those players who's, who's a contender wherever she goes. Petra Kvitova still plays great at slams. Victoria Azarenka, we've seen a resurgence from, just made a U.S. Open final. Garbina Muguruza earlier in the season making a final. And then you have this young crop of players as well who, unlike the men's side, they are going out and, and winning grand slams. Naomi Osaka has a few. Sophia Kennan now two slam finals this season. Are, are we transitioning like to a place where it's, it's all about the young players right now? Or are we going to see this balance for some time between just kind of like that push and pull between veteran players and, and the young guns? I, I think it's still going to be a bit of a push and pull as it has been in recent years. And if you even look at the likes of like Coco Goff, I mean, she's still 16 mm-hmm. years old. And with youth kind of comes this idea of you're not really aware of exactly what's going on in the moment if it's new to you. And that gives you um, a little bit of an edge, it seems, over experience. And some women in the field who have been fighting just to get their first slam or second or third slam, um, and so on. I think someone like Ash Barty could really change that. I think she's the type of person where if she was consistent, which you could say about anyone, I think she could find dominance in the game. Um, but other than that, it's really the perfect opportunity for players like Leila Annie Fernandez, um, who's been aforementioned, the young Canadian. So it, I find it exciting that it's pretty wide open because you still see the the usual veterans but it just it just leaves room for some new fresh star power yeah even in this uh, crazy french open 
Uh, we still had Petra Kvitova against Sofia Kennan in, in a yeah. Grand Slam semifinal. So, I mean, Kvitova, obviously multiple Grand Slam champion at Wimbledon. Azarenka back in, in, in the conversation, which has really been a, a great story to see. Um, it's just unpredictable. I mean, Azarenka, what, beat uh, Kennan 6-love, six 6-love six in, in Rome, and then Kennan goes on to make the final at the French Open. It, it is a fun time because of that unpredictability, but the depth of it allows you to have – pretty high quality tennis and pretty good storylines regardless. And then throw COVID in the mix too. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> very unpredictable. Craziness. Um, I was saying to Ben on our last podcast, I think that this was the first grand slam tournament in a while where I was equally excited for both the men's and the women's draw, because like we just said, women's tennis right now is, is super. There's so many personalities and emerging talents. And it feels like there's a new one at every slam to take notice of. And on the men's side, I don't want to say I was getting bored of the Federer, Nadal, Djokovic dominance, but the U.S. Open was refreshing to get a couple of new faces in the finals there. So I was really excited for, for both draws. And then, um, I mean, let's transition to the men's side. The result was the predictable French Open result when Nadal, once again, you know, his 13th title in Paris, his 100th win there. I could quote stats all podcast long. There's so many impressive moments and, and, and measures that he's reached now. Um, but if we talk about that final for a second, it, it didn't quite live up to uh, to the hype, unfortunately, did it? And I don't know if that was because of an injury potentially to Djokovic or just the fact that Nadal seized the moment and 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 realized the importance of of what that meant for him. Uh, what did you take away from that that final match? And and did you watch all the way through? Or did your channel change at all after those first two sets went by in such a blitz? I watched the whole thing. I mean, I enjoyed it. I thought, you know, I, I, I even though it was uh, very one-sided, more one-sided than certainly anyone thought it would be, I, I just I just enjoy watching Nadal. I mean, anyone at their peak, at their best. And even though he's 34, to, to be able to put forward a performance against like that, I was really jacked up just myself to watch it. I was like, okay. it's. I felt like the whole tournament had been building. I was doing all these interviews with people, and I wasn't even asking them, like, what do you think about this fourth round match that they're playing? I mean, Nadal played one match where Sebastian Corder was literally like, thank you for letting me be on the other side of the net with you. Can you sign my shirt after the match? And like, he's in press talking about how it would have been great if Nadal had hit this great winner against him. So like he was, he was like, like cruising and it's like, honestly, it just felt like everything was a prelude and then it didn't live up to the hype. I really thought, Djokovic hadn't lost a completed match all year and you know he's I don't think Djokovic gets the credit for being as good a clay court player as he is I mean just like Federer he would have won multiple French Opens for sure if he wasn't playing at the same time as Nadal so uh, it's disappointing but Nadal was just a beast in this tournament I mean I know it's on the list to talk later but it might might have been one of his most impressive titles if not right up there on the short list recency bias again makes you think like, wow, that was incredible. He's, that was his fourth time. He hasn't lost a set on route to the title, but he just dismantled Djokovic. It was, uh, it was, it was amazing. So I, I enjoyed it, even though it wasn't the five set, uh, you know, satisfying, you know, five hour, you know, slug fest that I thought maybe it would be. So I, I enjoyed it. I think anytime you can watch someone who's the greatest in the world do something like Nadal playing tennis on clay, you watch it regardless of how it's going. It's how I felt about even watching LeBron win his fourth title when it wasn't a good final game against the Heat. You still, you still want to watch, and years from now you can remember, oh, yeah, I watched when he made history. So, yeah, it was a disappointing uh, match in that it wasn't great, but I, I just think it's so cool for Nadal to – 
tie Federer for 20. And when we talk about uh, Serena Williams and if how many slams she has really matters as the final total, I just think it's so telling um, that Federer and Nadal right now are tied. And you saw Federer quickly coming to Twitter and releasing a statement saying how proud he is of Nadal and happy he is to share that record with him. It's it's just good for this the sport of tennis, and I was really happy to see Nadal make history. But he's just so good; it's ridiculous. Like it's it's ridiculous when you're when you have two people like Nadal and Djokovic who are far above the rest of the field, and yet then on clay, Nadal is even further ahead of Djokovic. It's just it's incredible. Yeah, it, it's unbelievable these two because they're as they're making their way through these tournaments and they're, they're cruising to like comfortable straight set victories, both of them themselves have another level they can play and they're not yet playing their best level and still beating like Hachinov's three, three and four for Nadal, just like beating Sinner in straight sets. And then they always bring it of course to that, that peak, uh, which we see in the final. And it's interesting because the last two finals, these two have played have, have been very one-sided. Uh, Djokovic crushed him, of course, at the Australian Open final in 2019. And Nadal uh, has the response here in 2020. And it was funny, he was asked uh, if it was sort of revenge. And he said, I'm not really in, into revenge matches. That's not really how he's wired. Uh, but now that we're just on the topic, he has tied Roger Federer for 20 grand slams. 13, Fr- I, I don't want to get into like a GOAT debate, but 13 French Opens. Um, 13 Grand Slam titles just at one event. Is this one of these records where I think we're, we're probably not going to see broken in our lifetimes, I imagine? Hey, time out for just a second, because Ben, I, you do want to get into a GOAT debate. I know that Nadal <laughs> fan that's, that's buried deep down. You want to get us into that. Oh, I don't know about that. No, no. Um, we can have that debate. We can have that debate when their careers are over. Uh, but uh, it's funny because... Uh, Djokovic, the way he was charging, the way he was playing, I think if this had been a title that he had won, you'd have plenty of people out there saying there's a strong argument, strong case to be made that Djokovic could could be the best player of all time. So uh, it's it's amazing the weight we place on one match uh, when it comes to Grand Slam titles. Yeah, history was definitely hanging in the air in that match, uh, just with the swing that you would have had. All the finals that they play now seem to have a swing in it. It's funny, Djokovic, again, lost only one completed match this year, and it still feels like a a bad year for him because of missed opportunities at the U.S. Open. And now, uh, especially at the U.S. Open, that he's going to be just – if he ends up one slam back or – it's just – because he has the head-to-head edge on the other – too and he has the the, the golden masters uh, you know he's won all those tournaments and he does have some other things going for him but i think that because of how much weight we put into grand slams that will be the the top line in this and again it's it's remarkable that uh, that how how nadal has been able to mentally compartmentalize that because he says you know he, he said it a couple times and he and he said it again after this match that he beat Djokovic. you know i don't think about the guy beside me having a better house or a better car or a better phone and um i'm just looking at what i can do i, I i'm really impressed with nadal's mental strength all their mental strength but you know if you look at this french open it was uh, later in the year so it was cooler um, there was night matches. He had one match to end at 1.25 a.m., which is the latest match ever. 
at the French Open because they got the lights this year. They had the new balls that he didn't like, heavier balls, Wilson balls. And he, he aired his grievances. He, he mentioned it before the tournament, and he said, but you know what? I'm going to be positive from now on. That's what, how I'm going to approach it. And he didn't really complain at all the rest of the way. He, it didn't seem to affect him at all. And it just kind of reinforced his legacy that this guy's untouchable because he can do it in, in the fall and with different balls. And he's playing Djokovic, playing really well. So to me, this just reinforces that what he's done at the French Open, as you, as you mentioned, isn't going to be touched again, probably, certainly not in our lifetimes. Can I just mention, it's kind of going off topic, because I'm in agreement that you have to have the greatest of all time debate once uh, Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic are all finished their careers. And I think regardless of where they actually rank in terms of total slam wins, there will still be debates and it'll mm-hmm. still be up for discussion because of the head-to-heads. But going back to the U.S. Open, I loved that final. And that was one of my favorite yeah. finals that I'd seen in recent memory because for the first time, without having one of the big three or even four, is you were watching guys who didn't know how to win and you were watching them try and figure it out while their bodies were going against them. And it just, to me, my heart was just pounding more. It was just, it was a little bit more fun. Like I love the elegance of watching Djokovic, Nadal and Federer go head to head and it, there's still tension. And, but we've seen it so many times that just seeing Zverev and team try and keep it together and, and they both succeeded was... and failed at different moments in that match. Totally, you know, yeah. It was like it was, it all was over. Organized chaos, kind of. Like <laughs> yeah. it was great. I loved it. I think that's good for the game. That tournament to me kind of felt like you know the parents are away for the weekend and the kids are having a party, <laughs> and then the parents came back for the French Open and kind of said, "That's it, party's over. We're back. We're putting our foot down." Um, we were talking to Jimmy Connors actually a few weeks ago, and he said he's looking forward to seeing sort of the transition, but but not a full transition where the big three retire and then let these guys have their moment. He wants to see both sides kind of have their time where they're able to go at it head to head and produce some good tilts between the big three and, you know, the next gen or whatever you want to call them. Um, are you guys kind of hoping that we have a, a transition period like that where there's some back and forth from both sides as opposed to the, the older guys just uh, sort of, uh, you know, fading away, so to speak? Yeah, so- I am. Oh, go ahead, Mark. I was going to say subtle name drop there with Connors, but go ahead. <laughs> hey, he was one of I my childhood that. idols. I've yeah, been dropping yeah. that name for three yeah. weeks straight every yeah. chance. As you should, as you should. Okay. I was going to say, what happened this week that you got me and Mark on? I guess oh, it's because it's a holiday Monday. <laughs> can't win them all, right? Yeah, no. exactly. Jeez. Um, the thing is, is we've kind of, I mean, we've been talking about this transition from the next gen uh, to the next gen, rather, before we ever even called it the next gen, like the Nishikori generation, the Milos Raonic generation, who are now 29, 30. We have seen, like, Milos in a semifinal at Wimbledon against Federer, and, and we've seen a bit of the transition. I think the biggest one is team against Rafa on clay, because he has found some success and he has pushed him. Yeah, I want to see, like, pass. I love seeing against this old guard. Um, but it's really, I'm kind of waiting for like Shapovalov or Felix to really have their, their push. Um, Medvedev, we've seen a little bit, but I'd love to see a rivalry created, but I don't know how much time those big three are going to give us. Um, And I don't mean them leaving the game soon. I just don't know how much wiggle room they're going to give us. It's, it's kind of like what you said, Mike, it's, 
when the parents are away, the children will play. Well, when the parents are there, they just want to play against each other. I enjoyed uh, Sitsipas saying uh, after uh, he advanced to, to the semifinals that he was asked about being next gen. And he's like, I'm an adult now. I'm not, <laughs> I've graduated. But I don't know if he has, to be honest. I don't know if he has because none of these guys, none of these young guys have shown that they can go toe to toe with uh, the big boys at the majors. And it's so hard that you have to win, you have to go through two of them at most of these grand slams. It's like, it's impossible almost in best of five, which is the great, uh, it, it's not the great equalizer. It's the opposite of that. It's the great divider. It's just so hard. They won't beat themselves. They're so strong. I like, I like the way the men's game is right now because it almost feels like you've got two competing streams going on. It's the, yeah. the young guys battling to be the next one and the big boys being like, who's going to be the legacy, uh, the legacy, like who's going to have the best legacy. But I mean, I'll, I guess I'll be that guy. Like, who do you guys think is like right now, if you had to, put a couple bucks down who's going to finish with the most majors on the men's side. Like, do you see fed coming back, like doing a 20 parting, like it's 2017 again, coming back from the knee injury in Australia, or it's hard to fathom that Nadal won't win a couple, maybe more French opens at least. And Djokovic is still so the best guy on and hard. And he's coming back in Australia where he's won eight. So if you had to bet, I don't know where I'd go. I, I feel like it's Nadal now again, just, Maybe that's because it's so fresh in my mind, but I mean, of those think? three, of those three, Roger's going to have the toughest time. You know, not only because yeah. he's that much older than them, but also because he missed, you know, all of this season pretty much because of uh, injury. So, you know, if we go back a bit, between 2012 and 2017, he didn't win a single slam until that Aussie yeah. Open, which mm-hmm. still kind of blows my mind. Uh, but then you're right, Mark. He came back from that injury and was great in winning two of the four slams in 17, and then. Of Aussie Open again in 2018. I mean, I wouldn't put it past him, but at the same point, it's going to be the biggest challenge for him. Nadal and Djokovic both seem to have, you know, at least a couple or, or many more uh, for Djokovic. I'd say he has the most upside. Um, Nadal always, I'm always worried with him and, and the knees and the body and, and how much he can withstand every year. And, and he's continued to prove me wrong year after year. So um, I, I, I don't want to go out on a limb and, and say who I think is going to have the most, but um, you know, Djokovic and Nadal are certainly far from, far from being done. And the little Federer fan in me that exists from pre-media days uh, certainly wouldn't complain if he had one last Wimbledon uh, in him. I know. I was thinking, do I answer this who I want it to be? or who I, think it's gonna be? Uh, I, think, it, I think it'll be Djokovic. And I wow. think that's what makes tennis really interesting right now is Djokovic. It's, it's pretty well, reported and broadcast that he just doesn't have the same public perception and love for him that Federer and Nadal do. And Federer and Nadal are two buddies, as I said. I mean, Federer's the first to tweet out his congratulations to Rafa for tying his record. And Federer said he's always happy to see Rafa win. And if there was anyone to surpass him, I think he would want it to be Rafa. I think it's Djokovic just because of the years that he still has to go. And on the hard courts, I still think he could beat anyone. He wants it so bad, too. Mm-hmm. And yet, yeah. again, that, that goes back to the discussion, is, is will he still be seen as the greatest of all time if he has the most Grand Slams? I don't know. Because then people throw yeah. in likability with that and, and head-to-heads. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's a little political. It you got to be careful what we uh, say. 
Yeah, he's uh, and he's still chasing actually that that record of world number one for consecutive weeks uh, for total weeks uh, that that Roger Federer has held for so long when he passed Pete Sampras. So there's there's all these mini records within the overall Grand Slam record, but I think the telltale stat for me on on the direction of where Grand Slams have been going has has just been this past decade. Novak Djokovic won 16 Grand Slams over the past decade. Nadal had 10. And Federer had four because he did have that that dry spell, as you mentioned, Mike, nothing from 2012 until that return in 2017 winning the Australian Open. But my sense from from Roger Federer fans is they would be ecstatic if he if he could just win one more Wimbledon, if he could win one more slam, because he is that that age right now where he's certainly on the way out. I wonder myself if he really only has one more season left. I, I know he was keen to play the Olympics. So Nadal and Djokovic have a few more years to play and more slams to rack up. And I, I know Federer would be at peace with Nadal passing and owning the record. I don't know if he'd be at peace with Djokovic owning it, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he may not have a choice. So That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. I'm going to go with Nadal. I think he's got a couple more French and one more somewhere else. And that'll yeah. get him to 23. And then I think, I think Djokovic is going to pass Federer but I don't think he's going to be able to catch Nadal. And it's amazing that Federer might finish third or third after all of this. Like when he passed (laughs) Sampras, that was like amazing. And it was like, like an incredible feed and Sampras was there. And it was like, wow, you know, no one thought anyone was going to touch Sampras. And now Federer might be third. I think he will be, but. That was over a decade ago too. He was 27 years old when he won his 14th. Yeah, that's that's bonkers. And I think when we when that number was set, we thought, well, no, well, nobody can can do that again. And uh, now we have two other guys. So, (laughs) um, yeah, even even if Federer is third in the Grand Slam count, I I still think there will be an argument, uh, not just from his fans, from other people who observe the sport, feeling he is still the greatest of all time. And he might still end up with the most career titles. Uh, he's chasing Jimmy Connors, actually, with that, that 109 number. So just another mention. Uh, in friend case of the show. Friend Your of the friend, show, yeah. Jimmy Connors. Yeah, yeah. My BFF, <laughs> Jimmy Connors, who has that, that record. Um, Carolyn mentioned uh, Denis Shapovalov and, uh, and Felix. And uh, obviously, we would love to see them um, make these deep runs at, at Grand Slam tournaments. And uh, we spoke so positively of what, they both did at the U.S. Open, particularly Denis Shapovalov reaching his first ever quarterfinal. Uh, to some, it may have felt even like a missed opportunity because he was playing Pablo Carreño Busta with an opportunity to reach the semis. But um, both uh, performing so well at Flushing Meadows, and then I, I know it's such a quick turnaround, you don't get a proper clay court season, but they kind of had a flop at the French Open. Uh, Felix out in the first round to Yoshihito Nishioka. Dennis loses to Roberto Carbias Baena. A little controversy over that match. We don't have Hawkeye. It could have been a line call that maybe helps out Dennis or obviously in this case hurt him. But it was was this a setback tournament for them? Or are they kind of young enough to just brush this aside and, and get right back at it at the next tournament, do you think? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't read too much into the French Open. Certainly not Dennis's. Dennis, you know, he made the semis in Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, he's in St. Petersburg now. Feel like they're all playing. They still have tournaments to go here. I don't. I, I see it more as a blip than than anything too much. Certainly for Dennis, especially he had a lot of momentum. Top ten debut, first quarterfinal of major. Felix seemed to uh, seem pretty drained at the end of the French. Like he he just seemed like he was mentally a little fatigued. It's not easy uh, for the younger guys to come back and um, 
you know, play week after week in these bubble kind of situations and, uh, and it, 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 you know, some tournaments, no fans, some little few fans, it's, it's tricky. So De Felix certainly seemed a little, little drained and uh, Dennis was, was feisty after he lost talking about the missed, you know, in his mind, the missed call. Um, and that's a whole other kettle of fish with uh, Hawkeye and is it accurate and Fox 10 and when will we have video review and blah, 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 blah. But, uh, but so I think it's a blip for Dennis Felix. I think it's a blip too. Ultimately uh, I was talking to Louis Borfiga uh, name drop uh, tennis Canada's high performance guy, uh, not Jimmy Connors, but he was saying he wants uh, OJL. He seemed to play a little more doubles moving forward, help his net game so he can finish points a little bit easier, which, which Shapovalov has done. Um, so I think I think I'm not reading too much into it. That was that for for OJ was his first French Open. Feels like he's been around forever. That was his main draw debut. So more of a blip, I think, for me than anything for those two at the French. I think it's to what you were saying, Mark, just about it's hard being in these bubble environments when you're younger. But I think it's also hard when you're not playing as much tennis as you're used to, uh, week in and week out, and match play. And that's where I think Felix it'll really help him uh, playing the doubles. We saw at the U.S. Open how much Dennis's game was improved from playing doubles. His net game, I was so impressed with how much better it was. And for Dennis, too, which struck me at the U.S. Open in particular was just how much more he's matured on the court. He still takes those risks and sometimes tries to paint the line for a winner when he could probably just try and hit it a few inches into the court. But that's why everyone likes watching him play. And that's why you're drawn to him because he adds that uh, – excitement value to his game and to the court but yeah I think like Mark it's it's it wasn't a great result as you know for either of them at the French but it's nothing to be concerned about. Another interesting thing about Dennis is he mentioned a lot how his work with his sports psychologist was really helping him and that's something Sviantec talked about a lot too so I, I gotta say it's nice to hear some of these young players a, turning to a sports psychologist and B, being so open about it. So it certainly bodes well for, for the future for Dennis. That's working out pretty good for you too, Mark, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm my own sports psychologist. Uh, it's, it, it, we have our good days and our bad. We'll move over to the uh, Canadian women here. And uh, it's funny because it wasn't necessarily the two names you thought were going to have the, uh, the, the deeper runs in, in Paris, but... Jeannie Bouchard, first and foremost, I mean, is there any player who's needed a, a reversal of fortune as much as Jeannie and Mark and Carolyn? You guys have talked to her many times over the years, and uh, I don't want to put anyone above another, but Mark, I do believe she said once that you were her, what, what did she say? You tell me. Uh, favorite reporter. Right, that's oh. okay. She's yeah. talking about why she likes playing in Toronto, so... Just to put it into the context there. But, We've got to uh, keep that head fitting within that square, but anyways... Uh, <laughs> But she certainly earned it, and, and for those of us who followed her, it certainly hasn't been for a lack of effort. I'm um, recalling the Rogers Cup last summer, where even though she lost in a very competitive first-round match to Bianca Andreescu, she stuck around for the rest of the week, practicing multiple times a day out there, and certainly didn't have to do that, and, and not under the spotlight in, in Toronto here. So what, what do you guys attribute the, uh, the reversal of, uh, of fortune for Jeannie and her sudden, I mean, she's, she's looking like a top 100 player again, isn't she? Yeah, and from what I've seen on court from her, she looks really fit. And that's kind of going back to her success in 2014. That's where COVID and the time off helped a lot of players who were healthy because they could focus more on their fitness. They had more time during the year to actually work on that as opposed to just trying to maintain it. 
And Jeannie was even trying to up her fitness about a year ago. But now I think we especially saw it in Istanbul ahead of the French Open. She just looks quicker getting back to the middle. And her game, as it always has been, has relied on the strength of being aggressive at hitting the ball early. And it's easier to do that when you can get to the ball quicker and sooner, even if it's just a half a step uh, faster than you could before. So for me, that's been the big difference maker for her. And a year and a half ago, I mean, she wasn't able to string together wins for months. And now you see that she's been able to string together some wins. So you can't underestimate either what confidence and seeing your hard work pay off has done for her. So I'm happy for her. She looks, she looks good. And it's nice seeing her kind of back in form. Yeah, 332 in the world at the pandemic pause and now up to 140. Uh, I agree. It's it, A lot of it is is the physical fitness. She, she said she didn't take any time off once the pause happened, and she was right on the court the next day. She's been working with Gil Reyes, uh, Andre Agassi's former strength and conditioning coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny. When she when, had that amazing year in 2014, it, it felt like she had a really good team around her, and then she made some changes. And now I think uh, on top of the physical fitness side, she's really built a, a good support uh, system around around her because Gil Reyes, who she works, that's why she's based in Vegas. And she spent some time with Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf, just talking to them and just having them kind of, she was saying like, I get texted texts from Steffi Graf and it's still shocking to me. Like, I'm like, look at this, like Steffi is. So I think that that, that boosts you a bit. Uh, She, she worked a bit with Renee Stubbs in the summer Uh, that helps. uh, And I think that, that, that really, really gives you a little bit of calmness. Um, you mentioned the fitness. Uh, she, she's won a number of three set matches, uh, four of them since she's come back, and that, that breeds the confidence. So now she's fit. She's getting the reinforcement on court, and it's too bad there's not more areas where more, more tournaments for her to play now because mm-hmm. I feel like she'd want to keep it going, even though she did admit after she lost to Sviantec. Five games, by the way, tying the most that Sviantec lost in the whole tournament. <laughs> I'm not saying Jeannie was second in the French Open, but you could make that argument. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's this too bad is why she's... you're her favorite because you say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeannie apologist. Uh, no, I mean it's 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 she's had a great run. It's great to see. And if if she's back and Leila Ani continues to go on her run and Bianca returns, I mean Canada Canada's uh, Billie Jean King Cup team is looking pretty darn yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be a, a relatively stacked team. We we saw the Canadian men's team at, at Davis Cup and what they did last year. And that was without Milos Raonic. You think what they could do with their, their full squad and the, the, the women as well. We, we spoke to Jeannie at the front end of July as well. And yeah, she talked about the work she put in with, with Gil Reyes in Vegas. And it's, it's definitely made a difference. I also wondered if it really helped her being in that world team tennis environment. She was playing around all these top American players, like very high level tennis, and she was totally holding her own. So I, I think, in, in some sense, it's given her uh, or rekindled that sense of self-belief on the court that, like, she belongs with those players. And, and to me, when I watch her, you know, the, that ranking, and often the ranking is just a number on the women's tour. I mean, we just saw a 54th-ranked player win the French Open. But Jeannie Bouchard, her best level of tennis is, is nowhere near 140. And right now, to me, she's playing top 50 level. And she had the right attitude when she came back. She was going to play anywhere. She went to Charleston for that invitational. She needed a wild card to get into qualifying for Istanbul before she made the final there. And uh, she, she's got the right mindset. It, you know, and I was talking to uh, to Heidi Eltebach, the, the Billie Jean King Cup captain coach, and she's like, as long as she has the right attitude and going into these smaller events, she's going to be fine because the tennis is there and the physical fitness is there. So um, it's it's really nice to see. She also mentioned she, she had really looked at her diet 
uh, during the break as well, which she said is, is, is the first time she really thought about that. And she was feeling like more energized just in general, cut out some gluten and sugar. And so little tweaks like that obviously make a, make a big difference uh, for, for the at high level athletes. So there's just been a lot of things that have started to come together and hopefully we can keep her, uh, see her keep going. I just added gluten and sugar to my COVID diet, actually. <laughs> so, I mean, there's different ways of going about things, I guess. But uh, uh, the other player that we mentioned on the women's side, and, and she's our guest also on, on this episode this week, is Leila Annie Fernandez. And, uh, I mean, people outside of Canada must just be looking at us saying, not, not another one. They've got another great player emerging. And, uh, again, you know, for those of us in the know, a great young woman and an emerging talent. But I don't think we would have, otherwise also predicted the success that she's had this year which she had early in the season with that big fed cup before it was Billie Jean cup win over uh, Belinda Bencic and then a win against Sloane Stevens and then this summer she's picked up and, and added some muscle and her fitness seems stronger and her mental fortitude is really uh, the thing that impresses me the most about her considering she just turned 18 but uh, how do you guys feel in terms of uh, the, the ceiling for Layla Annie here? She's great and I even liked if you heard just what she said in her press conference after losing to uh, Petra Kvitova at the French Open, where she said, I know I still have a lot to learn. And that's someone who was up 5-1 and in the first set and wasn't able to get it done against a top player and a Grand Slam champion. She knows that she has a ways to go. But I mean, if we even look back at Fed Cup when she beat Belinda Bencic, like she's she's improved even since then. And her game has good staying power because she mixes it up really well. She's creative. She has kind of many tools in her toolkit, uh, excuse the cliche, but she's smart and she's hardworking. And then you throw in the fact that she's a lefty as well. I think her ceiling is as high as she wants it to be. She's really good. And she's part of this next generation now in the women's game. She's, she's just very self-aware, which helps at this point in her career. And you see that in her results, there's the progression. She mm -hmm. qualifies, loses first round the Australian Open. She, she gets into the U.S. Open directly, wins her first round match, uh, loses to Sophia Kennan, uh, a Grand Slam champion. French Open, she, she wins a couple of rounds, and then she holds her own, I thought, pretty well against Kvitova, another matchup against Grand Slam champion where she was up 5-1 and had set points. And if she had been able to convert one of those set points, uh, it could have gotten really interesting because Kvitova would have been thinking. Uh, Fernandez would have gotten more confident, and she's not the the most imposing player on the court at five foot four on a good day, as her dad says. Uh, but she thinks the game very well. Obviously, uh, that's the great equalizer for her, despite the size discrepancy in most of these matches. And I found a, a, something interesting uh, she said during the tournament was that she feels watching soccer with her dad, who was a soccer player growing up, really helped her. Uh, think sports better. She's looking for the openings and the angles, and she really does hit angles so well. Uh, and that's how she out she she gets around the court. She's thinking kind of the next point ahead. And for her to be able to do that at this young age with the lack of experience, which she's now getting, it really bodes well for for the future for her. Which she's up to 89 now as an 18 year old. It's her and Coco Goff in the in the top 100 at that that at the two youngest players. It it really really does. Uh, does does bode well for for her and and for Canadian tennis. Yeah, that's that's such a an amazing ranking for her to reach to, and she sets clear and concise goals. She had said she wanted to get to top hundred uh, this year, and uh, you would have excused her for not doing it, given we missed six months of the year, and she still manages to do it and get inside uh, the top ninety without six months of tennis. So. For, for her to make that progression, this is a player who won, won the juniors French Open title 
last year and, and now she's she's making third rounds of majors uh it, it's been really special to see honestly i agree <laughs> I was sorry. Wet, I just I was hate awkward for, silence. No, I, was coming to the I was waiting for Mike to chime in. Oh, That's sorry. what I, I was, was waiting for too. I know. I wanted to wait my turn. It's the turkey and the gravy, oh, and uh, yeah. Okay. Sorry, I got lost Defend, there for a yeah. moment, but. Uh, uh, before we wrap up, I mean, I feel like we could go on forever with you guys and that's because of, uh, you know, just both of you are, are fantastic tennis analysts and, and, and friends of ours that we've gotten to know over the years too, covering the, the Rogers Cup and, and whatnot. And I've got questions about Mark's bookcase behind him and, and want to <laughs> do a, like a comparison between his and Ben's for those who are watching this on YouTube, but maybe we'll save that for a, a future episode. But uh, I did want to end with a player that we haven't heard very much from in, in 2020, and that's uh, discouraging for her fans and obviously for her as well, and that's Bianca Andreescu. Um, the injury sustained last November at the WTA Finals, uh, that didn't allow her to come back when she wanted to, and then it seemed like she was making progress in training, suffered yet another injury setback there, and the camp's been very quiet up until recently when Sylvain Bruno um, did sort of break radio silence, but have you guys heard anything from behind the scenes that her fans can sort of grasp onto for some hope moving forward? And, and how concerned are you just, you know, at her tender age uh, that she's already had so many injury issues, unfortunately? Well, I spoke to Bruno last week just to check in and he said she's hitting in Monaco uh, and she is progressing well. Uh, and he, he's not there with her, but he's seen video and he, he likes, likes what he's seeing. So that's positive. Uh, there was some talk that they, that she maybe could come back. There's only a, a, maybe two tournaments on the schedule left for the WTA. So they could have maybe tried to force her into one of them, but they just said, you know what, there's been so much, uh, you know, there's been such a tough string of injuries here. Let's just make sure we got this all squared away. Um, our understanding is that it's a foot injury that she, that's cropped up during this, this, this break. Uh, is it, so, so she seems to be on the right path and hopefully back for, for Australia uh, is it concerning? I, th I think it has to be a little bit, of course, just because she's young and she's already had to deal with uh, the foot, the back, the knee, the shoulder last year. It's, that's just a lot uh, for a young player. But she is young and still developing and getting stronger. And so I feel like that, that she'll be all right and she'll come back. And even with a, more than a year away from competition, she'll be able to, to get back. I mean, the, the rankings situation has, has helped her obviously a bit with her being able to keep all the points from from her tournament wins and she's still seventh um so that will help her it's not like she's fallen out of being seated at a grand slam or anything so that's kind of where things stand uh, you know part of you is thinking like okay she she's had all these injuries that, that can't be good and maybe she's just getting rid of this bad luck now early in her career and once she's older and you know physically stronger she'll be fine so that's the way i i'm kind of looking at it, kind of glass half full yeah, I'm not too concerned. I think 2020 has helped her in the sense uh, with this injury popping up in the summer, the, the foot injury, that instead of returning uh, sooner than you need to, she can take this time not just to focus on full health, but to make sure that she's ready physically for 2021. Because if we even look back to a year ago, headed into the Rogers Cup, she hadn't played since the French Open. That tournament, even though she won it, she was playing her way back into shape. And right now, with the injuries that she's had, you don't want to take further risk by playing yourself into shape while you're playing matches if you don't have to. So I think it's smart what she and her team are doing. And again, based on COVID and how things are going, the Australian Open, she's going to have to get to Australia even sooner. 
um, in terms of the quarantine and preparing for that. So these last couple months, two and a half months of this year are a time for her to get really fit and maybe even fitter than she was a year ago before the injuries kept reappearing. And that'll set her up to really be ready for 2021 feeling confident, feeling healthy and feeling fit. Because I think in, in all sports, we sometimes confuse health and fitness where I see them as, as two different things. Health has to do with injuries and being injury free where fitness has to do with what we were talking about, Jeannie, just physically being very fit. Yeah, yeah. Well, well said. I mean, that leaves me feeling much more confident now. Thank you both for, uh, <laughs> for that. I'm sure her fans will appreciate hearing that too. I mean, can't wait to have her back on the court. It seems like it was such a stellar year for Canada, even without her presence. So just having her back will make it, you know, that much better too. Yeah, it bodes really well. I mean, again, the French Open, we had some great stories and Milos Raonic did not make it to the start line and Bianca wasn't there. With them in, in the mix, that's eight singles entries. I mean, Steven Diaz qualified, but we're, it's looking like yeah. we're getting to the point in Canadian tennis where we're going to have like six, seven players in the singles main draw just getting in there on their own and many of them seated. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be fun. It's, it's, the future is extremely bright. We're going to be talking to you guys a lot down the road. That's, that's for sure. So, us and uh, Jimmy. Right? That's right. <laughs> yeah, if you can squeeze us in. Yeah. yeah. We're doing our best. And hey, look, on that note, it is Thanksgiving weekend here in Canada. For those who weren't familiar, who are listening from elsewhere. And we're really thankful for both of you to take the time. And, and again, having, you know, the tennis experts from both TSN, Mark, and Carolyn at Sportsnet, which are Canada's two main sports leaders, um, super special and you know the passion and the knowledge that you guys bring and and you know you got a good sense of humor too so thanks for joining us and uh, and I'll let Ben uh, bid you farewell but uh, looking forward to the next time yeah thank you uh, so much guys uh, for for taking the time and and joining Matchpoint Canada and we'll have to touch base uh, further down the line thanks guys this was fun yeah Canadian tennis the passion that unites us all right <laughs> absolutely <laughs> or something um, <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, and before we go officially from this episode of Matchpoint Canada, I will point out we, we had a poll um, started two weeks ago at the front end of the French Open, uh, a signed Victoria Azarenka ball from Rogers Cup last year. She, of course, made the U.S. Open finals. And uh, congratulations to Bradley Panter uh, in Toronto. Well done. You have yourself a signed Victoria Azarenka ball. So we will uh, get you out that tennis ball as, uh, as soon as we can. I'm Mark's gonna, got some behind him. He, he should do a Mark Masters signed ball. A signed Mark Masters ball. That would get a lot of retweets, <laughs> I think. These were in the bottom of my closet when the pandemic started. And I'm like, this could be in the background. I spent a lot of time thinking about the background for my Zooms, more than I'd like to. It was actually kind of fun early in, in the pandemic to be like, what can I? Oh, these books I haven't read. They, finally, they come in handy for something. But, uh, Save that stuff for the next one, Masters. But um Looking forward to hearing all about the stuff you got back there. I actually caught a Rafa Nadal signed ball at the Rogers Cup one year as a really? fan. Yes, I gave it to my sister. Big mistake. Cool. Big mistake, but I hope she yeah, still has it somewhere. Reflexes. I caught it. It was awesome. I was all, it was, the fans were loving it. And uh, then I said, I'm going to be a tennis reporter. No. That, <laughs> that, was, was, a good, start, that was the start of <laughs> Masters Nation. That's where it started. Rafa looked at me and I think he winked. No, I didn't. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Thanks, you guys. Take care. Happy Thanksgiving. Let's get out of here. Again, eh? Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. -bye. Bye.